Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We are highlighting adaptations from Season 9 over at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. Robin and Marion was specifically based on the ballad, The Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods. We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel, Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations, Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series, and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical. Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir. And we looked at a trio of John Le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Plus, all three movies in our Agnieszka Holland series were based on books, Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore. La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's original play. We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series. All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals.
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. Pennies from Heaven is over, so it's time for a hangin'. Once upon a time, America was singing the blues. Pennies from Heaven. Now, from the music of the past, comes the musical of the future. Pennies from Heaven. Starring Steve Martin in a dazzlingly different role. As Arthur Parker, the music salesman who believes in a world where the songs come true. No more money in the bank. No cute baby we can spank. So what's to do about it? Let's put what are you doing, Arthur? I was pretending. All right, Andy, this movie is a movie in an identity crisis. Please respond. <laughs> I, <laughs> I agree and I disagree. Well, that sounds like an appropriate answer. <laughs> uh, are you saying I'm in an identity crisis now? Well, somebody an is. Crisis? Yeah. No, it's it's an interesting movie because it really is taking the genre conventions and kind of uh, kind of turning them all which way. And I think that that uh, opens up the film for a much more interesting exploration of what the story's about. So I, I think there's definitely something here. Um, it's it's a hard watch, though. And uh, so I, I think to that end, you know, I can see you know where you're coming from because it's a, a, a trickier film to watch. It's not just a chipper mgm musical it's not just a funny steve martin comedy it's it, it is a musical but in context of it being musical it's like a faux musical it's like there's yeah. a lot of things about it that uh are kind of peculiar but it's unique and it's uh you know i'd say it's original even though it is a remake of a tv series i i agree with you and though i've never seen the tv series what do we can we talk just briefly about the tv series uh, have you seen it do you know what it is do you know if it's i mean i know who was in it bob hoskins and uh um oh cheryl dear campbell. now I, cheryl campbell uh but did it have the same sort of convention that this one does it was, was it a musical TV show? Yeah. Dennis Potter wrote it. He also wrote The Singing Detective. And it's okay. kind of his thing to kind of create these stories uh, that mixes the reality of these kind of dramatic situations with fairly dark kind of fantasy. And the TV series, my understanding, I haven't seen it either. Um, it's a six-part, I, I, I mean... You know, the British TV, it's like six part miniseries is what we call it over here. But it's basically like a. But every episode is like three hours long. <laughs> I, I don't think they're quite that long, but uh, it's <laughs> it's more like The Office. Mm -hmm. They um, it's but it's basically the same story. It's just it's a longer telling of it. So you have more time to get to know these characters and and really kind of. uh get into this world i mean it takes place in london as opposed to chicago but otherwise it's it's a very very similar story just much longer 
So the convention of this thing, for those who don't know or aren't refreshed on it, is uh, Steve Martin plays a sheet music salesman, and he is, uh, I I could, I mean, I, I likened him to our Walter Mitty character, right? He has these certain desires of his life and of his relationship with his spouse, and he's trying to make good on all of these things. Not a lot of money, needs some money to really grab that American dream. And uh, in the process, when he goes into his flights of fantasy, he sings. There are these luscious kind of song and dance numbers. Uh, but all of the song and singing and dancing, uh, with the exception of just a little snippet at the end, they are lip syncing songs of the era. And uh, so that's that's the conceit. And it if you think, hey, that sounds funny, uh, you would be absolutely uh, right. And it actually isn't funny at all. Uh, it's lovely. There are areas of it that are lovely. I find my memory of it was that I I think I liked it more when I was younger. I came into this with a list of quibbles that was significant, but none of my quibbles ended in I hate the movie. They're all wishes that I just of just choices that I think were uh, ripe for this movie to fail. Uh, and I was more frustrated than disappointed uh, because it's a curiosity and it's a curiosity that I found myself rooting for. I this is the second time I've watched it. The first time was actually fairly recent, like sometime in the last five or ten years or so, uh, just because it was one of those films that I'd heard of, but I didn't really know what it was. And I was, you know, just kind of it piqued my curiosity. So I watched it and I was like, wow, that was a dark one. And um, so I, I knew what I was getting into this time. And I feel like it actually improved for me. Like I ended up enjoying it more. Because I, I don't know, I, I guess I, 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 I still really struggle clicking with these characters. Like Steve Martin's character is just not likable. Like there's not much likable about him as a character. But I really appreciate what the filmmakers and the storytellers are doing by creating this kind of fantastical world that they're in. And it's, it's, it's a world that is kind of shaking up you know, the convention of a musical, and it's giving us this really, really dark story. Um, I saw somebody online compare it to kind of a horror film um, where they are, it's it's really nihilistic in the way that it's treating the, the genre. And I think that there is something to that. It's like, um, you know, we're taking a trip to hell and we're singing along as we go. And even the ending when he gets, uh, he gets um, <laughs> uh, convicted of a crime he didn't commit, and executed, uh, it still ends on a song and dance note, and they say something like, you know, wow, do we think we're gonna, you know, end it on a on a on a sad note? No, we're gonna end it happy for the audience. And that's kind of how it ends, even though it's all just like in his head. It's you know, very much, you know, that's not really. I mean, it's like this is the Sam Lowry, you know, uh sort yeah. of ending where you know that <laughs> that he is dead. This is just uh, you know, we're just giving this to you. And it it Almost is like we keep getting that throughout this film. You get these beautiful songs and beautiful song uh, dance numbers. Like it just it's gorgeous the way that all of that stuff is constructed. And then you're slapped back into the reality of how awful kind of life in in the Depression era Chicago is. And it was it was pretty terrible. And and so 
you can only live for the joy in these fantasies. There's nothing joyful otherwise. It's a pretty uh, difficult film. And so I think because of that, I I still struggle with a lot of the things in it. And and it's it's not a film that I think is um, a perfect film by any stretch, but it's something that has grown in my estimation. And I feel like it's something that I could watch and, and find more appreciation with um, as time continues. Can we, I, I want to start with one of the big questions uh, that y- you and I clearly agree is worthy of a discussion as a big question. And that is it the convention of this thing as a musical in which the characters are lip syncing. Um, does this does it work for you as a convention for the entirety of the film? It takes getting used to. I, I I think I struggled with it more the first time I watched it. This time, I I I think by the time I got to the second number, which is at the bank, and you have the bank manager and and everybody just doing this kind of funny dance number, and the bank manager is lip syncing, and it's like this like squeaky Betty Boop type of voice, and so it's really funny. And so I think because there were elements like that. It helped me accept the song and dance numbers as as fantasy. And, you know, I mean, let's face it. We know in a musical, you know, it's fantasy anyway. People aren't walking around doing big song and dance numbers in the real world. It's just not happening. And so anytime you see a song in a movie, it's kind of just this, The either the movie is just kind of this fantastical place where things like that just happen, or we are kind of already going into their mind and kind of experiencing the way that they're seeing things play out or wishing things could play out. And I feel like because of that, it ends up working. And it 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 did take me some time to get used to it. But once I once I clicked with it, I was okay with it. It didn't bug me too much. You know that genetic thing? There's this genetic thing where you where some people are genetically wired to not be able to like eat broccoli. Like they eat broccoli and it tastes really, really bad. I love broccoli. All right. So you don't have that, right? So there are people who when they eat broccoli, they absolutely hate it. I also think a similar parallel can be made to people who see musicals and can so overtly, openly tell that they are lip syncing. And I'm one of those people. I hate it. I hate it so much. I try to get used to it. I think it's a gimmick that works better in like a Saturday Night Live sketch. Uh, it, but it just does not sustain for the duration of the movie. By the time we get to that same number that you're talking about, I'm fed up. And all I want to hear is these people actually singing. I want to hear their voices or I don't. I, it, and it's not even that I want to hear specifically their voices. I know that in, you know, musicals and movie musicals, often actors are dubbed. Uh, I, I, but the conceit of singing the songs of the era out of character is is the is the first thing that I just can't adapt to over the course of this movie. And I think it's made worse uh because of what we know about a Steve Martin as a musician though not notably as a singer he can carry a tune but Bernadette Peters who and, and as a, an absolutely stunning musician and we've we've talked about that uh, a, a little bit in her in uh, last week i cannot stomach watching her lip sync other people's songs as a gag it just 
It just doesn't, I, I've never been able to connect that to the heart and soul of the movie. I don't see it as resonant or relevant to the story they're trying to tell. And, uh, and it doesn't le- lend anything to the fantasy of his Walter Mitty flights uh, for me. I just can't stand it. So the, it's already like, that's, that's one of the things that, is, that, that starts this movie at a star deficit for me. Interesting, interesting. So you don't think that it lends to the fantasy? I don't. I, I think it's so well, how, I think how? It's, it's 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 fantastical. It it is fantastical, and it's, maybe it's that it's a bridge too far. I don't understand the connection in a way that feels uh, uh, sort of pure to his flights of fancy uh, of them of them not singing their own uh, using their own voices. I just I feel like if he if it really was a flight of fancy of him you know taking control in his in this you know fantasy world in this dream world if he's taking control of his destiny in these dreams he should be singing his own stuff uh it it feels like a weak tie uh and uh, and i just don't buy it i just i i never buy it it, well, it it's a, the only it's time I've seen it happen in a musical that that I recall. It's it's an odd, uh, other than like you know a junior high school musical or something right. like that. Uh, it's it's an odd choice to to do, but I, I I still think it's a bold one. And in a weird way, I it it it's an odd one. And I'm not I'm not it like I'm not completely opposite you as, as far as this film goes. I'm just playing devil's advocate because I I think that there. are are some inherent issues with the fact that they do this. But in a weird way, I slowly start clicking with it as the film progresses, even if it's not something that's my favorite thing. It's the Stockholm Syndrome, Andy. That's what you're describing. The And just, I, I do think I, I want to point out, I'm not sure in the TV series how they handled the music. I I've looked and I I don't know if it's something where the characters are actually singing or if they do it like this. So I cannot confirm nor deny. Uh, How about Steve Martin? I was thinking about this because this is his second film. I mean, we watched uh, we watched The Jerk, which was his first film after making it as a comedian. He was very popular, very funny. He does a, a comedy film. It's very popular, very funny for the time. And then his immediate next choice is to do this, which is a, just a huge left turn. And it's kind of out, out of left field to see him jump on something like this that is uh, not a comedy. It's, you know, it's not something that you jump into because it's going to be a big box office success. It's just a really quirky project. And I, uh, I, I actually enjoy i i think he is doing a great job in this film and i i will say this is a film that i think while it at the time likely was a mistake to uh to do something like this that was such a hard switch for his kind of new fans that uh you know it, it, like it almost could have been a career killer sort of project but what i think it did is and this is why I think it actually ends up being a success because it showed right out of the gate that Steve Martin isn't just going to be a stupid comedian doing stuff like The Jerk, that he was an actor who had a little more meat and could do some more interesting things in the projects that he chose. And so I think that doing a film like this allowed films down the road to pop up like Parenthood or 
uh, what's the one where he's like the the uh, religious uh, kind of the charlatan? Uh, what was that called? Adore that movie. It's, um, it's a leap of faith. Leap of faith. Leap right. of faith. Yeah, that's is the what one. we're talking about. Yeah. There were a whole yeah. um, slew of projects that he ended up appearing in that I think were because he early on in his career showed people. I can do different things and I'm going to do different things. And it wasn't necessarily a success, but it allowed him to kind of do that. So, so uh, I think that his performance, as much as I dislike his character, I think that he does a great job in the film. I here, here's another one that uh, where I, I totally agree with you mostly that I think everything you've described about how this movie fits into his career is um, is right on the money. This is one I struggle with. Like, if he were here right now, I would hug him really tight. And I would say in his ear, I'd say as I'm hugging him, you are amazing. I love your work. And I just don't like you in Pennies from Heaven. I just like <laughs> this character is so hard for me to get around. And But again, and is that, it the character I think, or the performance? We, yeah, the performance. Him in the skin of this character, I have trouble with. And and so there are two pieces of it. First of all, obviously... I am uh, I, I'm subject to the context shift. Like I expect out of every corner, around every corner, for there to be more comedy in this movie than there is. It takes me too long to kind of acclimate to seeing Steve Martin in this particular role. It it shows for me. It demonstrates for me that he's he's a man of great intelligence and and um, depth. That he takes this on. I wonder if um, you know if he was the right choice for this role at this point in his career and to be able to portray this is more importantly to be able to portray this like sex deprived uh kind of lunatic right that's the other side we haven't really talked about a lot of this movie is all is like hinges on him wanting to get laid like yeah, a right. lot and uh i don't i i just find uh, i i can't wrap my head around that part of his performance when he's lifting up his shirt and doing the little sex dance around the house chasing his wife like i find uh the both the highs the the sort of lighter moments of that drive that sex drive for him and the darker moments when when their marriage is sort of falling apart i'm not uh emotionally invested in that i'm always sort of outside of it and uh and and so i'm i to me i i lay that on uh steve martin steve martin's portrayal of this character would it have worked better for you if it was bob hoskins obviously it wouldn't fit into the series here but would bob well, hoskins I, work yes uh, actually i i think it would and uh i think for a couple of reasons one um i have more, let's say, uh, um, confidence in Bob Hoskins' range uh, to do those highs and lows with a, a deeper sort of texture uh, in the a human texture in the performance. And um, I, I just don't think like I, I this the Steve Martin in this movie is the Steve Martin that I feel like we finally reach in. As you know, one of my very favorites, the Spanish Prisoner. Uh, I, I feel like that's a guy that that has the the kind of well of sort of sadness uh, that that uh, I, I don't 
see him tapping into in this movie. And I think Bob Hoskins uh, is a character with or is an actor with uh, more reach for that kind of darkness. Yeah, I haven't seen like like I said, I haven't seen the original show. And honestly, I haven't seen much of Bob Hoskins early work. So I I can't say how well uh, he fits. But but still, I agree with you. He's an actor who I gravitate to more in my head with darker projects. Anyway, he just carries that presence with him. And so I feel like there is something about him that would end up working. Likely you know who else I could Martin. put in there? I, I could put in, a, when you think about the characters, actors that are so well known for their comedy, I'd put in a a character like Jack Lemmon. Like there is a guy who is naturally funny and and certainly has an affinity for comedic camera, but also is is able to pull from a well of just not even just sadness, but desperation. Right. And and is just in, incredibly rich in his portrayal of those kinds of characters. And so I, I feel like Steve Martin was a little bit uh, out of his depth at this point in his career for this kind of character. And I think the movie suffers as a result of it. Well, he was a fan of the original miniseries. He said it, yeah. it was the greatest thing he'd ever seen, which is, I think, why he wanted to be a part of this project so badly right. and, and why he wanted to bring um, his squeeze at the time, Bernadette, um, on board as well and and did so. And I can't fault him that. I mean, you know, I I appreciate that he was trying something big and different. And, uh, okay, it didn't work completely, but, you know, he was trying something. And as an artist, I think that that's what you got to do sometimes. So I, I can't totally. fault him that. I certainly don't fault him. And if you look at anything, it is some 70-odd, you know, performance credits. Uh, and then his writing credits after that, like, the guy is nothing if he's not willing to take risks. And so I've I've always looked up to that guy as an aspirational, just straight-up creator. And, and so... Um, you know, I, I would be actually interested to see a remake of this movie with him now. Uh, that, that's that would be an interesting thing. You already talked about your love for Bernadette. What did you think of her in the film? I mean, obviously, oh, I would love to talk more about sing, my, but, yeah, uh, I'd love to talk more about my love of Bernadette. I actually think that this movie is, uh, in contrast to what we get from Steve Martin's portrayal of Arthur, I think what we get here with uh, with uh, Bernadette's portrayal of Eileen is uh, that exact kind of. Here is a very young person uh, who is able to draw on uh, a a very like dark energy to transform her from like school teacher to prostitute uh and to get from her in the classroom uh to the scene where she's gussying herself up and turns around and and says gotta go make those dollars right uh, to like that is just such a a radical and yet believable transformation for me thanks to her that uh, I, just, I mean, she's just terrific i think you know for me you watch this movie for bernadette peters well she had a line uh late in the film that i think really summed up the entirety of the film for me. She said, we've only got one life, Arthur. We both know we made a mess of ours. It doesn't seem to matter much how it ends, does it? Mm -hmm. That, to me, defined this film. That, And I think that she carried that weight with her. You know, she is a character who rolled with the punches, and it was, you know, she didn't pout and whine with the way things 
played out. She just kind of went along with it. And it was dark turns that she had to take as she starts kind of, uh, she becomes a prostitute for uh, for Christopher Walken's character of Tom. And uh, it's it's just not a happy place that these people end up. And I, yeah, I, I agree. I think Bernadette just nails it. She she has the uh, the soul that that you really feel all of those highs and lows throughout the film, and also kind of just an acceptance and a weariness that goes along with that. Now, uh, Christopher Walken is the other sort of big name character, although he's not in it all that much. Uh, we do get a fantastic song and dance number from him, which is what, you know, it's it's a thing that he obviously has studied uh, for a lot of his life. And we we get some, you know, as, as his reputation changed as one of the kind of the sort of weird, dark actors who was, you know, he was put in stuff because he's kind of a stunt cast and his voice and his demeanor was always something that was so unique. Um, he He really... He's a great song and dance man, right? He just has some oh, yeah. fantastic moves. And uh, it, it made me think, you know, really wish that we got even more of this out of his career uh, as a performer. He's just so talented. Um, kind of kind of missing that great Christopher Walken dance. That made me want to go back and watch that Beck video where he's dancing yeah, on right. the walls. That was so cool. What would you think um, of Walken? Uh, he's fine. I mean, I guess it took him, uh, it was two months to rehearse that, the, his dance scene, uh, two days of shooting it. And, um, it, I mean, I, it's, it's top notch stuff. I, he does just a great, great job of delivering that. And I think that he fits perfectly into this world. I love him, um, in his small role, but I think he's great in it. Um, and, uh, you know, the other of the main characters, Jessica Harper, as um, Arthur's wife, Joan, the very kind of put upon, uh, you know, wife stuck with this philandering husband, um, is a really interesting character because she has to just kind of take she's at the she's at the end of all of his, uh, you know, issues and his philandering and his uh his perversions and it's really kind of just rough for her just the way that she has to deal with everything and it was it was really hard kind of just everything that was going on with her and i i really enjoyed her little musical moment where she kind of fantasizes stabbing him to death with scissors and i wasn't at all surprised when the police came and and asked her about him and and she she basically tells them to go get him. And what, what does she say? Make sure you cut off his thing. I want them to cut his thing off and bury it. <laughs> yeah, she's fantastic. That, that that was a real low point in terms of the just generally sadistic uh, emotional tone of this movie. And uh, a, a real disappointment in. And I and I mean that not that I was disappointed in the movie. I actually quite liked it, um, but a real disappointment in the kind of emotional relationship of these two characters, who had both kinda worked on their relationship. And I say both kinda. He didn't really. I mean, he manipulated his way into getting what he he wants, and and that was uh, I, I thought a pretty dark statement on just his role as a man and in this relationship with her. And yet she was trying to please him and become subservient to him by kind of addressing his sexual uh, wishes. 
that that it just started falling apart because he could not one keep it in his pants and two uh he he couldn't figure out how to have an honest conversation with her at all i thought was really disappointing and a great testament to kind of the the dark fabric of this film that that they were delving into and and he's just a liar i mean he was just such a liar like uh, just to her, to Eileen. I mean, he's just lying to everybody, and it was just, it was really frustrating that this was the character that we were with because uh, he's just—it's such a dark, dark character. And it made me wonder if watching the TV series, it felt as hard to like the protagonist as it did in this case because you have you know a six-episode run to really kind of take your time with the characters here. I mean, it's, you know, two hour film and you really have to just kind of jump right in with this character who's just a you know problem right out of the gate. And I was wondering about that. Like, is this something that you is this a set of characters that you find you would be interested in seeing in spending more time with? I understand that there are projects out there with protagonists who are characters that are just harder to like it's you know it's a different kind of storytelling where you have characters that you don't like but you're going along with them and you really Mm -hmm. kind of are put into their head and uh, kind of get a sense of their world i think that's a really interesting and difficult type of storytelling to for the writer and just for the people involved obviously actors gravitate to roles like that because it gives them a real meaty um, character to portray um, I, uh, yeah, but it's like, it's like Breaking Bad or something, you know, you really kind of get into this world. And I, I don't know, I guess I found enough interest with this movie more so the second time that I, it, it actually has piqued my curiosity quite a bit, especially because just the way that the fantasy blends with the reality, I think that, you know, it, this could be a really interesting, um, miniseries to look at. So yes, I, I am, uh, curious about it. I would like to see that character get a get a win in a way that I don't I don't think we got from Steve Martin. Um, What do you think about the whole murder line like that? Is that was that an inevitable twist? By the time you get to the end of the movie, did it feel earned to you? It did. It felt uh, I, I think that it felt like we were in this dark world and he was a a character making dark choices and i I think that it just there was a a sense of fate that for me felt like inevitably this was where we were going to go especially because you know it involved the accordion man who was this hobo he had kind of hooked up with early in the film who has a fantastic musical number um and and he's the one who kills the girl and then uh, the accordion man, I mean, and then how that Arthur is framed for, I don't know, just all of those elements kind of came together and it, it worked to kind of just kind of create this sense of fate that, you know, he was, uh, our character of Arthur was inevitably going to cross paths with all of these people and it was all going to be a tragic end. I don't know. It worked for me. Yeah. I, I, I see that. I, I I struggle a little bit with it, and and in this way, I started to compare the the movie to a story like Chicago, 
the musical and the the story of you know Roxy Hart and Velma Kelly and that is a musical where we have people actively singing and dancing it's in Chicago and it's about murder and it, it is about murder from the beginning to the end it is the story of murder and uh this one feels like it's first a character story struggling of this guy struggling to survive and then this murder comes out of nowhere and here we are uh, with a character the accordion man who was first a character who was offered some benevolence and shared some gratitude how did he become this guy who killed a blind girl like that felt bizarre to me and it's not because i can't handle those kinds of murder <laughs> stories in song and dance shows it's just I, but it's weird i don't know there's this sense of this this place where i mean he the accordion man always felt a little off and i mean his dance numbers a little off he's kind of got this exotic weird way that he dances there's something strange about him in his conversations with arthur it always seemed off and and so by the time he ends up uh running into the blind girl and and killing her it just i don't know it it didn't strike me as a surprise because this character was set up as kind of this off character and in the world there are these people you know and i don't want to uh, point to specifically just the homeless population but there are people in the homeless population who are mentally ill and who have a hard time dealing with um, kind of just the realities of the world. And I don't know. And it, that's what so you me, that's what you got out of the accordion guy. Yeah, I mean, totally. I mean, that's exactly who he is and what he is. Honestly, I, I missed everything you're talking about here. I totally missed with the accordion man. Really? You got a sense that he was just a normal guy? Uh, I. It was a story of a guy who lives in poverty and plays his music to make a living and uh, lives at the grace of those around him who are. I, right. I, I thought there would go, there was going to be a story that somehow tied him to Arthur relating to music and sheet music. And there's all this like musical subtext that never actually gets uh, rewarded. And so I, I didn't like when that came along and he pivoted and ends up being the uh, um, murderer of the blind girl i was i was really shocked yeah i guess i just didn't uh it didn't pin me a pin i don't know what i'm trying to say it didn't i wonder i would like to have asked odd. you i would like to have asked you after you meet him before you'd seen the rest of the movie that would be where i'd say what do you think he's going to do and see if he'd say oh he'll probably kill the blind girl <laughs> <laughs> that's what i want on the record because i did not see it uh and i thought that was that was frustrating but okay. you shouldn't have to be able to see all of this stuff for it to work and you know i mean but you should be able to put the pieces back together after you've seen it and i can't i can't rationalize those things uh, i can't i think it's okay. it's silly so all sorts of people kill people <laughs> I'm not admitting to anything. Sure. <laughs> I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh what do you what do you think of old Herbert Ross? He's he's done some things that we quite like. Um 
I has he? I don't think I I've love the seen... secret of my success. You shut your mouth. <laughs> okay, I guess I forgot he had done that one. I was and looking at all of his girl, earlier goodbye, films Mr. before Chips. him. Uh, I I haven't seen that one. That's the musical oh, version. Yeah, I've only yeah. seen the one that we talked about on the show. Footloose. Yeah, let's see. I so this is the uh, earliest film of his that I've seen. Oh no, the Goodbye Girl. The goodbye mm -hmm. Girl. Um, this and then Footloose, Protocol, Secret of My Success, Steel Magnolias. Oh, and returning to Steve Martin with My Blue Heaven and uh, True Colors, Soap Dish. I love Soap Dish. Yep. Okay. So see yeah, what I mean? Got, he's got some stuff that that I do enjoy. He uh, he actually comes as uh, his background is originally in ballet uh, as a, a professional career, and he says he was too tall and big boned and never had good feet. Uh, but he it's does a hard, uh, hard life for a dancer. Yeah. Yes. Uh, absolutely. And uh, so you know the he he definitely has a, a bent for music, musical theater. Uh, and I, I think he brings that to his performances. There's nothing that I ha can say to complain at all about the musical numbers besides the fact that they were lip syncing. I think they were just fantastic productions. And uh, I, I credit him and obviously um, uh, Gordon Willis behind the camera, but for having the, the sense of stage and the sense of space and how to use those wonderful, luscious sets, uh, to their greatest effect. I really enjoyed, uh, watching the way he put those on stage. And I think that's, uh, you know, certainly a credit to so much of his, um, his work and his work as a as a former choreographer. I mean, he was a, a Tony nominated uh, choreographer on on Broadway for for a time. So um, I, I think he's just fantastic. And obviously, because of his um, his uh, love for musical theater and film. I mean, he had done, I think, a film shortly before this uh, called N Nijinsky. I think it was right before this, which also was a musical. And so clearly it was just something that, uh, and I guess you could say Footloose to a certain extent is, <laughs> is a musical. I, I think that he enjoys that form. And I think that he uh, d knows how to kind of bring it forward. And because uh, I think that this is very much in the hands of an assured director who knows how to handle big musical numbers. Like the musical numbers in this are just astounding to me. I mean, really just beautiful. Like some of them are just Busby Berkeley-esque. You've got a nice variety of them, like the little radio hour trio of the, uh, you know, when it's Arthur, Eileen, and Joni all singing together. Um, the accordion man's dance number, um, the huge musical that you have at the end. It's just, I mean, it's really some, some, stellar stuff going on here and i think you pair what he's doing with the production design which is just beautiful very perfect 30s chicago look and gordon willis's uh cinematography i mean it's just it's a really kind of just a lush gorgeous film to look at i think so too i uh I certainly can't fault the eye um did you notice the the recreations of four famous paintings are you talking about Tableau? The only one that I specifically noticed was um, uh, Nighthawks by Edward Hopper. Uh, later in the film, when you have Arthur and Eileen sitting in the cafe. Oh, God, of course I yeah. noticed that one. That one is iconic. Yes, yeah. absolutely. 
Yeah. Also, there was one New York movie by Edward Hopper, which was uh, created, and then two by Reginald Marsh. One is 20 Cent Movie out in front of kind of the movie theater, and then the other one is called... Um, what is the other one called? It's it's the strippers up in the window. It's Hudson Bay Fur Company, and it's when he first opens his new record store, and he looks out across the way on the, to like the second floor of a of a fur shop, mm-hmm. and it's models who are standing in the window, kind of modeling the furs. And uh, I was okay. like, okay, there's there he is being a perv again, watching yep. the women in their furs. But it's it kind of out. a recreation of this <laughs> shot. Yeah. I think that it's a really interesting way to do that, especially with these particular artists who, uh, you know, as, as I was reading about them, their work examined social and spiritual displacement of characters in relation to their environments. And I think that uh, that is a an interesting and perhaps fitting way to kind of put these particular characters into these spaces. Music, uh, we've got uncredited music uh, by Ralph Burns and Billy May. Uh, but mostly the music is the the stuff you notice is the stuff that they're lip syncing. Yeah, it's a it's a tricky sort of project to be responsible for the music for because yeah. your music's not going to be ever really paid attention to. It's all the songs that everyone's singing. All the songs. I that was one of the things I thought was interesting. Steve Martin actually said when asked, you know, why did this which spoiler it didn't do that well uh why is this considered a a flop and he said you know i can only imagine we should have used you know better music music that was more popular in the period uh and i i don't know i think it's okay to hang your hat on that some of the tunes were um uh, maybe a little bit more obscure but i I think but they were fine and i think the uh, the title song pennies from heaven is certainly an earworm so um I I did I don't know that I wholly share his opinion on that being the reason the music uh, that the music is the reason the film didn't do that well but uh, it's certainly one that he was parading around for a time. Well, and it's funny because uh, you know Fred Astaire he was very upset that yeah, he had some real issues <laughs> that they used his footage uh, and he had he was powerless to stop them from doing so. They reused uh, footage from his film in there. And he said, I've never spent two more miserable hours in my life. Every scene was cheap and vulgar. They don't realize that the 30s were a very innocent age and that the film should have been set in the 80s. It was just froth. It makes you cry. It's so distasteful. So that makes me wonder if Fred Astaire would have liked it if it was 80s music instead (laughs) instead of 30s music. Well, I mean, the the problem is that according to Fred Astaire, the 80s aren't cinema. So, (laughs) Yeah, it's another grumpy old man syndrome. Yeah, right. Yeah, but apparently Fred Astaire at least appreciated Christopher Walken's dancing, so that's good. And that is well, well well-deserved. This had an interesting, uh, oh, you want to talk about the movie poster before we talk about rights? And speaking of just kind of all of the fantastic look of this film, uh, you know, between Herbert Ross, Gordon Willis, Philip Harrison, the production design, uh, I have to give a call out to uh, the fantastic movie poster. I just really am enamored by the way that the poster looks. Uh, it's a it's a beautiful example of Bob Peake's just solid poster design um i just this is one that i um you know it's it's a again it's a trickier film but man is it a gorgeous poster it it kind of has that that it's one of the family of uh poster 
designers, right, with Drew Struzan. And I mean, just has such wonderful character, that sort of watercolor feel of character yeah. with the lens flare and or the the, the light uh, flaring out. I mean, it's just beautiful. And it paints a real picture of the period and, and the, the tone of the film. And uh, I, I think it's great. And you also even I, I think you see it, I'm looking at it's too small right now. But I think is that Tom dancing right in the front? Yeah, I can't tell either because it's so small. But yeah, um, it, it looks like it's actually showing dancing in the poster, which would have given an, a, a lot away. So what are you going to do? Right, right, right. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see who that is, who would actually get that credit because we have Steve Martin Bernadette Peters named on the poster. So who is the third unnamed individual in the poster? I mean, it curious. could just be Steve yeah. Martin again down there. Uh, yeah, um, as I look at it now. Is it just on a much bigger a version of it? It's uh, yeah, it's kind of him, and it looks like it's him in the black and white kind of tux outfit that he's wearing in the end when he's kind of uh, doing the dance mimicry okay. with the the Fred Astaire movie. Got it. Got it. Yeah, that's what it looks like. Um, MGM had some opinions about getting this movie made and uh, exactly when and where. Things called Pennies from Heaven could be watched. We talked about this not too long ago with the film Gaslight when we were doing our series on uh, Ingrid Bergman and some of her right. films. Because, again, MGM is <laughs> like, man, they just they have this thing about locking up. Uh, projects that they that they buy and adapt. They they in that case it was the 1940 film Gaslight that they uh, that they locked up. Or, or no, sorry, yeah, MGM locked up the 1940 version so nobody would confuse it when they remade it in 1944. It was a very similar situation in this particular case because what they did is they basically bought out the rights to. Pennies from Heaven, the TV show, and they told uh, the BBC that uh, I, I think that they put together a contract saying that they couldn't show it again for 10 years. And uh, but then after the end of those 10 years, uh, they still weren't giving it back. And the uh, the original producer had actually had to buy the rights back from MGM for a, like a pretty hefty chunk of money, like they said for, you know, $100,000 or something so that they could rebroadcast it. And so from the from 1980 when uh MGM purchased the rights to 1992 it was you were not able to find the original BBC show because of this silliness that MGM does. Uh, so I don't know, it's just so weird. And you can only watch it at the MGM Grand. When you're <laughs> actually staying there, it's weird. Uh, yeah, I don't. I'm curious about all of these rights handoffs. Like, does it? Do, do you stop and think? Was is this one worth it? Like, is this one worth locking up? Like, right. the, the movie ended up being, you know, middling. Yeah, not that great by a lot of people's uh, measure. Yeah, yeah, it was a uh, tricky I, one. It was a tricky yeah. one. Yeah. All right. How to do it? Awards season, Andrew. Uh, it had three wins, nine other nominations. Uh, over at the Oscars, Best Adapted Screenplay uh, had a nomination, but lost to On Golden Pond. Costume Design was nominated, but lost to Chariots of Fire. And Best Sound lost to Raiders of the Lost Ark. 
I don't know if I'd argue with any of those. If anything, maybe costume design. Uh, over at the Golden Globes, Bernadette Peters, you'd be thrilled. She did win Best Actress for Comedy or Musical. The film was nominated for Best Motion Picture, Comedy or Musical, but lost to Arthur. And Steve Martin was nominated for Best Actor in a Comedy or Musical, but lost to Dudley Moore in Arthur. And, I'm okay with that for sure. Yeah, I, yeah Dudley Moore, I think, uh, was great in that film. Um, and the, just the only other thing I was going to point out, Gordon Willis, his cinematography did win at the Boston Society of Film Critics and the National Society of Film Critics, was nominated for the New York Film Critics Circle, but uh, he lost to Chariots of Fire for that one. Then we get to the central question of the night. I already spoiled it. It didn't do very well, but how not very well did it not do? Yeah, it was a tough one. Um, on the success of uh, Martin's last film, uh, Herbert Ross got $22 million for this. More, we'd say, experimental film, which is about $62 million in today's dollars. The movie opened December 11th, 1981, on a very busy pre-holiday weekend, opening opposite four other releases, Buddy Buddy, Dawn of the Mummy, Four Friends, and Rollover. None of the films other than this one could even crack the top 20 however, and even this one only made it to spot 14, which was not a good sign. The movie didn't end up making much, only earning $9.2 million back, or $25.8 million in today's dollars. That puts the movie at an adjusted loss per finished minute of $335,000. Not a great second outing for Steve Martin. I just have to I just have to point this out. This is an IMDb trivia note that I think okay. <laughs> speaks... I, I don't know if there's any sense of this being real. Uh, I, I can't imagine it is. It just seems like somebody put it in here to be cheeky. It just says, Steve Martin chose to do this movie rather than Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That would have made that film a totally different a experience. Totally different experience. Uh, hey, uh, as we as we close up here, I want to just um, mention I've got the the write up from the BBC version. I just want to read a, a little bit of it so that we can sure. look at some similarities. Uh, six part miniseries remains one of the edgiest, most audacious things ever conceived for television. Tells the story of Arthur Parker, a sheet music salesman in 1930s England, beaten down by economic hard times and the sexual indifference of his proper wife. Arthur cannot understand why his life can't be like the beautiful songs he loves. On a sales trip through the Forest of Dean, he meets a virginal rural woman he suspects may be his ideal. Ruination follows, punctuating virtually every scene, is a vintage pop song, lip-synced and sometimes danced out by the characters. This startling innovation makes the contrast between Arthur's brutish life and his bourgeois dreams even more dramatic. Potter's dark vision digs into British stoicism, sexual repression, the class system, and even the coming of fascism in Europe. It is especially poignant on the subject of the divide between art and reality. I want to see that. Well, I guess you do want to watch the BBC miniseries then. I do want to watch the BBC miniseries. That's what I want to see. And on that last point, I wonder if adding those elements of British stoicism, British sexual repression, the class system in Britain, and the coming of fascism to Europe makes the context of that film or of that 
series uh, more compelling than having it sort of transported to Chicago, um, the Depression-era Chicago. I, I wonder if the story demands some of those quintessentially British cultural elements that um, that make it a more uh, a, a robust or rich story. I, I'm very curious now. I have a feeling that you're still going to complain about the lip syncing. Probably that. No, I'm already <laughs> complaining about it. Just here, seeing it written there, I'm already bitching about that. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about that. But I want to see some Bob Hoskins. I think I can get behind that. Yeah, very excited. All well, right. I, I, yeah, I liked this one, um, and it's definitely something that I'd be curious to watch again. I think that it can grow on me. So it's not my favorite of Steve Martin's films, and it's a very peculiar musical, but. I don't know. I, I think there's something here. Very peculiar indeed. Let's uh, let's take it to the mat. Let's do it. Head to flickchart.com slash the next reel. And uh, you'll see the list of all the movies that Andy and I have talked about uh, for however long we've been talking about movies. And uh, if you click on or tap on the the word flick chart in your show notes, you'll be taken straight to this movie in the flick chart database where you can add it to your list and see how it stands up against ours. First up, Pennies from Heaven or Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. Robin Hood. I'm going to say Robin Hood. Pennies from Heaven or David Cronenberg's Shivers. I'm going to say Pennies from Heaven. I went with Shivers on this one. Okay. And it ended up being decisive uh, on my own list. This was the middle point, which I feel weird about because I think I'm liking <laughs> Shivers more every time I rank against it. Wow, that's funny. Uh, enough so that I think we need to we need to play it out. All right, let's do it. All right. One, one two, two, three. three. Paper. Scissors. <sighs> Pennies from Heaven takes it. And a decisive win. Mm, Pennies from Heaven or Russian Dolls. We'll take Pennies from Heaven. I uh, will take Pennies from Heaven. Pennies from Heaven, which was, the last one was funny because speaking of unlikable characters. Yeah, right. Uh, Pennies from Heaven or Big Fish. Please. I'm going to give you Big Fish. There we go. I know you're surprised by that. <laughs> I am surprised, but it's right. <laughs> <laughs> Pennies from Heaven or the 2005 remake of The Producers? Uh, the Producers, Musical absolutely. V Musical. A bona fide, legit musical versus a yep. lip-sync dancing drama. I, uh, yeah, I had some issues with the musical, but I'm, I'm going to pick The Producers, though. I'm Good. with you. Pennies from Heaven or What's Up, Doc? Oh, definitely What's Up, Doc. What's Up, Doc? Pennies from Heaven or Gremlins? Absolutely Gremlins. Yeah. Pennies from Heaven or No, the Chilean. No. I'm going to go with No. Political I'm going to go with Pennies from Heaven. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. I feel like I need to get Gabrielle on the phone. <laughs> uh, okay, let's do it. All right, here we go. One, One two, two, three. three. Rock. Rock. Scissors. Rock. 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 <laughs> nice. All right. No takes it. <laughs> Pennies from Heaven or Princess Mononoke? Princess Mononoke. I will take Princess Mononoke as well. Well, that lands Pennies from Heaven in spot 268 on our chart. 268 of 427, which is about a uh, 37%. All right. How to do on your own? 
it did better on mine. Um, and it went up from the last time. The last time it was pretty low to the bottom. Um, now it landed at 2387 out of 4231, which is about a 44%. This one landed at 1140 out of 1415, which is a 19%. And I'll tell you, I disagree with it um, because there were some things as much as I'm, you know, complaining about the movie and, and some of these elements. I do feel like it is. Um, uh, it, it's, a uh, it's got some things going for it. And I was, I, I opened saying that I was kind of rooting for this movie and I'm still rooting for the movie. Like I, I sort of want it to get better next time I watch it. So I'm going to end up with a, with a solid two star over by, uh, over at letterbox.com slash the next reel. I'm going to ignore the algorithm this time, uh, and, and jump it up from what is suggested a one star, which feels pretty catastrophically low. low. I assume you're ignoring the heart as well, though. Yeah, I'll ignore the heart for now. Well, I'm giving it three stars and a heart. Uh, really? It's, yeah, there's, there is um, enough here that really piques my curiosity. And it's imperfect, but I find it fascinating. So that's where I, that's where I sit. There you go. Where do we go from here? Are we, please tell me there's another incredibly uh, depressing drama of murder and uh, <laughs> classism coming next well murder yes uh, classism uh, not quite as much we are going to be looking at another I guess you could argue experimental film for Steve Martin uh, it's it's uh, just a year later 1982 and returning to uh, Carl Reiner again for this one it is the very unique film Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid Okay. All right. You know this film? Is this one of the ones that you've I, seen? I have seen it now, but only because so this of was the your first I had time. never it was my first time watching it, yes. Can't tell the mics in the way. Are you smiling? I uh, <sighs> I'm not saying one way or another. I'm not giving you anything. Oh, for crying out loud. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. <laughs> Amazon giveth, Andrew. As Amazon always doeth. Mm-mm-mm. People like to talk about the potty mouths in this movie. Mm, potty, potty, potty. Yeah. Uh, do you want to you wanna take this one on first? I'll kick it off. I've got a three-star just like mine. Oh. I know. By Sherry there. Sherry there says, if only this video would have cost pennies rather than dollars. That's it? That's it. But see well, how she brought in pennies from heaven, and she did. She worked that just, in and ended up making worked. a valid economic uh, argument. Yes, against this movie. Three, I'm just I saying it's okay is... if it was cheaper. I think is what All she's right. saying. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got one from Ms. Flassen from December thirteenth, nineteen ninety nine, who says, "Crude and vulgar." This movie sickened me. The music was great, but the way it was used in the movie didn't do it justice. To be frank, I hated this movie. I couldn't find anything to like about it. Steve Martin and Bernadette Peters were as wonderful 
as they always are, but I really hate to see talent wasted. I really can't understand what kind of sick and twisted mind would write a screenplay like that. I was completely disgusted with the utter lack of any kind of loyalty and honest, decent charity for mankind. It was very unrealistic, and I found it not amusing at all. If it was supposed to be, it was only feeding the perverse minds of people who enjoy that. So, that's you that she's talking about. Totally talking about me. Yes, so that's got to feel something, right? Great. I feel something. Things we learn about each other. Mm. Pervert. (laughs) Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Today.